Now, more tips with your host, Rebecca Rogers. Remember that in our program, we present our opinion and the opinion of our guest, and is not to be interpreted as medical advice. Hello and welcome to our program, Lifestyle Improvement. This is your host, Rebecca. Today we have with us, Adam Larson. Mr. Larson is a documentary filmmaker and a video projection designer for live performances. He has completed projects for over 200 productions in opera, dance, and theater. Of great interest to our listeners is that Mr. Larson directed two feature-length documentary films about disabilities. One of them is an acclaimed film titled Neurotypical. This is a film about autism from the perspective of autistic individuals premiered on PBS. His other film titled Undersung, focuses on the challenges surrounding caregiving for severely disabled family members. We are very pleased to have Mr. Larson join us today here at Lifestyle Improvement to share his story and to tell us what he has learned from making this incredibly important film productions. Hello, Mr. Larson. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Perfect. Very good. And I'm so thankful that you were able to join us. I know you're very busy and it was challenging (laughs) to be able to get you scheduled. So we're very, very happy happy that you're with us. Your films, I have looked at some of the reviews and I went to your website, which you will tell us more about later on. A very important film. What was the moment of inception for the idea to make a documentary about autism, specifically from the perspective of autistic people? Great question. I uh, grew up in Asheville, North Carolina. My father worked with the TEACH program uh, here in North Carolina um, in the early 90s. And that program serviced autistic individuals um, uh, throughout the state. And I know it it was initially state funded and unfortunately I think they lost their state funding uh, relatively recently. But uh, through his working with TEACH, we would host social group gatherings at my house. And uh, I remember from this, I would have been in high school at the time, and maybe even a little bit younger, um, we'd have gatherings of adults on the autism spectrum that would come over to the house and we'd um, have food and we'd play games and uh, it would be a safe environment for them to socialize. And I remember completely being um, drawn into this culture. And I'll call it a culture because I, um, I became friends with some and I, and I really felt that they, um, with some of these individuals and that the way that they related, uh, was specific. Um, it wasn't always, wasn't necessarily verbal. Um, uh, there, um, it was nuanced, even though they say that social interaction amongst, um, autistic individuals isn't. So a lot of the stereotypes I think that I heard, at the time were not necessarily true of these folks as I got to know them. And I became friends, as I said, with some, some of the individuals. And I, I, um, I really felt that there was a complete mismatch between what was being portrayed, uh, in the news or in through movies. So we're all familiar with Rain Man and, uh, which presents a savant and, uh, and the news, I think, would also either prevent, present savants or very severe, very challenged uh, individuals, uh, nonverbal children. And while both of those exist within the autism spectrum, it is a spectrum. And so there are many, as I would say, normal, like, well, I hate to use that word, but there are many normal autistic people in that spectrum. 
And those were some of my friends and acquaintances through my dad's social group uh, gatherings. And so I went to film school. Uh, that was kind of a happenstance thing. Um, I, uh, my family has also, my mother's an artist and I was involved in art and um, really uh, just kind of fell into film and grew to love it. And so I, um, and in the back of my mind while I was in film school, I was always like, wow, I would love to do something with this you know, with this autism film, I think it could be really interesting and you know how time passes and you need to make money and, um, and documentaries typically aren't money makers. And so I sat on the shelf or at least in the shelf of my mind for a while until I had a, a good friend here in Asheville who was filming other, other documentaries and she had far less training than I did, but she was doing it. And I was so inspired by her uh, just chutzpah or her ability to just dive in and, and film with borrowed equipment and, and this. And I even had a camera at the time and I was like, you know, I have to start this. And so my, um, my father and I, and my mother, like we, all three of us, we started filming interviews here in Asheville and we were hooked, instantly hooked, uh, with the first interviews were, uh, again, they were, I interviewed John, who's John Engel, who appears in the documentary. He's a friend of mine and he plays the fiddle. He was our first interview and it was mind blowing. It was amazing. Um, the, his stories that he told. And at that point I knew that, um, I wanted it to, the film to be about the perspective of autistics, but I didn't of course know how it was going to evolve. And, um, and from there just started interviewing, you know, one person after the the next, some better than other, better than others. And, um, yeah. And that's what I would say the inception was. So basically, you got to know them at a personal level because of the experiences you had with your dad, bringing them home, becoming yeah. part of a community, if you may, you know, educationally, but at the same time, socially comfortable environment. And you began to to see that there was a need for them to yeah. be understood better. And you thought that maybe the film was a good way to to do that. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a, you bring a good point. I mean, I, I um, I'm big on I was born with crossed eyes. And so like I you mentioned in the in your introduction of me that I've done two documentaries and they're both about disability. And when I was 13, I had an operation on my eyes. And so but I've always encountered the world with this slight difference um, uh, or at least this lens of difference of understanding that people can look different or they can think differently. And that's OK. Uh, and um, when I started to get to know these folks, I realized that there was a very rich culture, um, a very vibrant um, and very misunderstood uh, group of people. And in that misunderstanding, I felt that a film could benefit them uh, to, to also like, I, I did some job coaching as well. And I also um, was around for some, some experiences of, of folks when they were diagnosed for the first time and, and how empowering that was for them uh, as an adult to be all of a sudden understand why you may not have fit in or why you might have had challenges with your you know, significant others or your workmates. Um, I found that to be really, really powerful. And so I just thought that there was a lot of room for a film that could uh, empower folks on the spectrum and uh, basically just question question normalcy because uh, everybody everybody has differences whether you um, 
feel like you're uh, neurotypical or not. And so I just felt that, that we would be benefited by um, something. And I also just, I, I, like all these folks I find really amazing. And, uh, and also they're the, and I hate to generalize or, or to stereotype, like, um, because everybody's an individual, but um, in each of the interviews, the way their thought processes were, I just found really compelling. And, uh, and it made me, uh, just it made me really think and really curious and, um, and it opened me up in many ways. I heard something that was very interesting to me, and that was that when these individuals received their diagnosis, they felt empowered. That's really important because of the understanding that they then have not just of their own condition, but that it's actually okay to be different. Yes, I, I would definitely say that. And I think uh, everybody has a different experience. Certainly, some people don't like hearing that they're, you know, they don't like getting a diagnosis. And there's a lot of um, fear, anger, or frustration around it. But oftentimes, I found with adults, and of course, I'm talking about adults who are independent, verbal, just they found a community for one. They found uh, because there's a huge online communities uh, for socializing for with other like-minded um, folks on the spectrum. They uh, there's immense amounts of resources also about kind of understanding how to fit in, how to socialize. Um, uh, in each of the interviews uh, that I you know when I ask these questions about when were you diagnosed, um, I and and how and um, and this I would say that. M- more than I'd say probably three quarters had very positive, more positive experiences when they were diagnosed. And, uh, that that's, that's amazing. Uh, and I think it's, it's almost as if you go through life and you, you keep on running up against the same wall time and time and time again. And the moment you understand that, uh, you can make accommodations for it and you can also, um, so that you just have a lot more kindness around yourself and around others. Um, uh, and then and for those that were married, I mean, I think that their spouses also then could understand ways to, to better partner with them, you know, and I think that's a, that's a huge one too. Uh, same for it. Oftentimes it was parents of children that had just been diagnosed themselves. And then when they realized that, Oh, these qualities that their children, that they're saying their children has, which is part of an autism spectrum diagnosis, uh, that's also me, you know, and so then they, they realize, oh, I might be on the spectrum too. Yeah. This is your host, Rebecca, and now we will take a short break and we will be right back with more ideas on lifestyle improvement. As a caregiver, you spend your days caring for the needs of someone else. But what are you doing to help yourself? In our Caregiver Survival 101 workshop, we teach you the self-help skills that will empower you to be healthier and more productive. Do you feel tired, overwhelmed, have difficulty sleeping? Do you feel isolated? All this could be signs of caregiver stress. Chronic stress can impact your health adversely and ultimately cause irreversible and unwanted physical problems. Take a step towards your own personal care. A healthy caregiver is a better caregiver. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones to do what is needed to stay healthy today. Go to www.caregiversurvival101.com. 
That again is www.caregiversurvival101.com and discover how we can help you help yourself. Or call 877-957-7387, extension 101. That again is 877-957-7387, extension 101. Caregiver Survival 101, because care starts with you. And I appreciate you saying that there's a continuum in the spectrum because, of course, what we were talking about is probably defined as someone that is pretty functional and independent, like you said. Yes. Uh, versus, of course, when it's a severe diagnosis, which is definitely um, most difficult for the caregivers, which we will talk about a little bit more uh, later. The name neurotypical probably is not very common for a lot of people. No. So... Number one, explain to us what do you mean by neurotypical? What is the definition? And why did you then decide to call your film neurotypical? So neurotypical is a word that uh, folks on the autism spectrum use to describe, quote unquote, normal people, um, neuro and typical. And uh, I love it because it is completely flipping uh language around, um, and, and I'm having a minority group define a majority group. And I think that that's a really important perspective, um, to have. And because the film is from the perspective of these folks, these autistics, I just felt that it needed to, we needed to have from the very, very, from the title, it needed to be from their perspective. This must have been, it sounds like it was a profound experience for you, I think, to do this film. I, I can see how it would have been a profound experience for me. What did you learn from the process of making this film? What surprised you that maybe you weren't expecting? Wow, good question. I So it was my first documentary, and it I started it after a long time, quite a little while, working in theater as a designer. And so I, um, as you mentioned earlier, I design visuals for live performance. So when you go see a, a ballet or an opera or symphony, um, oftentimes there's projected image video imagery that's in the background. And so I, um, fell into that after film school and I grew to love it. And so I, um, it, it's a wonderful community as well of artists. And, uh, I, I don't know. I don't think it, I moved, I kind of moved in parallel with documentary because I also love the community of documentary. It's a little, it's lower budgets than Hollywood films. And it's, I think it's very smart and you have to look at things from um, at different angles and there's a lot of problem solving. So it was something that I really, uh, I also really appreciated. Uh, so when I started out to make this film, I, um, I really, I had a background in from film school so I studied cinematography and I knew how to shoot and I had a camera and I had some lights. So I knew how to light as well. I had some sound care. I, um, I, uh, and I had my parents and we had no money. So it was self-financed. And so a lot of like, I can talk about like some of the things which were, um, technical things that I learned, which I, which are also very much related to autism. Uh, and then I can also talk about some of the other, um, the other things as well. Like, but through this process, I, um, I, as I was kind of first starting, when I interviewed my friends, uh, it was, I didn't have to be as prepared as I later found 
out down the line. So being very, very clear was, was paramount to the interviews. And so what that amounted to is initially like with John, our very first interview, I had some basic questions, uh, that I, um, asked him, but then also he had a lot of things that he'd already prepared for this. And, um, and I, um, later found that a lot of the individuals like to prepare and they would want the interview questions in advance. And so I just made that a precedent that I would always send the interview questions, um, so that, that whoever I was filming would be comfortable and there were no, uh, red flags or anything that caught them by surprise. And so, um, I, very quickly learned that comfort was like the key component to all of the the interviews. And that was actually like across the board. So we had, uh, my father would ask questions. Um, we had a no, like no crew whatsoever. So it was me on camera and also setting up sound and I would, um, and then my father asking questions. And so when you're working with somebody who may have sensory challenges, uh, light, for instance, I, um, I needed to light everybody because, uh, that's, it doesn't look good if you interview somebody and they're not lit. Um, so I would, uh, find out what balance of light was okay for them. And, uh, and sometimes I would bounce it off a wall so that it wasn't like right in their face just to kind of have some illumination. But in each instance, it was always, um, uh, making sure that they were comfortable. Same for the microphone. So I'd always have two microphones, one, which was, um, I wish they had a better word for it, but it's called a shotgun microphone. It's about a, you know, this long and you uh, have it on a, a boom pole. And I would always set this on a stand. I would like tape it to a stand and it would just kind of angle towards them. And so that wasn't touching them. And then I would have a little lavalier microphone that you clip to their shirt. And in some instances, for folks that did not like to be touched at all, I would clip it like to the edge of the table. So just below the frame, and I would just clip it right here. Um, so that was a second accommodation. Um, and then I would say just being very, um, just very clear and very direct. I mean, we, we did run into some challenges where we, uh, uh, through emails and back and forth where something was said that was not clear and then somebody may almost backed out of the film because they started getting uh, nervous or felt that we might be, you know, going to take advantage of them in some way. And so we just had to be really, really clear. And also just, um, I mean, because think of it this way, if you've had challenges fitting in and uh, any social interaction you may have may have the chance of not succeeding um and also maybe um may lead to some like uh situations which aren't safe or for whatever um and also you're you're putting yourself out there in a way like um by being on film like and and the whole population however nobody i didn't even know how big the film would be or not but you don't really know like how people are going to perceive what you're saying on camera. Um, and so you want to make sure that whoever's capturing that or taking, you know, or filming that is going to, um, handle it to the best of, you know, in a, in a way that's appropriate. And, um, uh, so I also would also, I would also offer that I would send them any, if they were, if I did include them in the film, I would make sure that they could see it before I, uh, finished it so that they would be completely comfortable with whatever was there. And so that's kind of the technical things that I did. Uh, that I learned along the way. And, um, I would say it was very, uh, it was humbling to, to, I, um, I missed a lot of things because I would also talk 
talk to people and just kind of warm them up and just be just friendly and, and nice instead of just getting straight to business. And so there were times when I'm like, Oh man, I wish I could have filmed that. Like, um, but I ultimately, I guess I, I was just always feeling that whatever ended up on tape was what was meant to be. And that all that time was not, it was spent well because it just, I needed to make sure everybody was comfortable. Um, and then, I mean, I, I was continually in the process of interviewing. I just was constantly blown away by what these folks were saying. I mean, there were, I interviewed probably, uh, 77 hours of footage and I had, um, close to how many 30 interviews. Um, it's paired way down in the film, um, because I just, it needed to be the voices that worked well within the story I was telling. Um, and all these individuals, I mean, I, every single one would have things that I, were blown away by and also made me question my own prejudices and my own, um, yeah, you go in thinking, you know, something about someone or you start to stereotype a little bit about autism and go, Oh yeah, I, I can guess what this is going to be about. And then, you know, you find, uh, then everybody breaks that mold and you really realize that it is this human spectrum. Um, and, although someone may have a diagnosis of autism and, uh, and that's like, um, uh, each and every one of us has qualities, which if they were magnified could fall in that spectrum. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty idiosyncratic and I, um, if you, you know, I very like organized and structured. I like, I like that, um, because I manage a lot of projects and in my tired moments, I can see, I get really frustrated by things out of place. And so I'm like, Oh yeah, like that's really, that might stereotypically be an autistic, you know, quality that's in, 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 on the autism spectrum. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I experienced that too. So, um, uh, yeah. And also like, I also, a big thing I think for me is that I, um, although the film really does feature folks who can communicate and who are more independent, I, um, I felt that, their stories, because it is a spectrum, could relate to folks who are more challenged. And um, I still very much believe that. I think that there, there's a, there is a re- relatedness amongst that. And one of the stories or one of the interviews is of Paula, and she's uh, an adult and she's a, an advocate for autism and was diagnosed late in life. And, and she, uh, at the time of the film, was married and had a, a neurotypical husband and neurotypical child. And I, um, she told me that she would lose the ability to, to talk if she got really stressed out and so she just couldn't speak anymore. And that to me was a big clue of just stress levels and, um, and how there is a commonality, not to say that, you know, that it's an exact relation amongst, for somebody who is nonverbal and, um, but if you have so much, um, uh, sensory uh, sensory, so many sensory challenges that are putting your system in overload. I mean, I can see how speech would be something that doesn't, you know, that might fall by the wayside or eye contact might be something that isn't necessarily important, um, because you're not getting information from that. That's sound comes from the mouth, not from the eyes. And so like, I, I, I found these things, which I felt would really benefit. Um, I, I really in the process felt that, uh, these stories, because it's also they're talking about their um, the folks in the film are talking about their childhood uh, would um, and all the things that work for them to be become successful and independent and, and this. And so I thought that could benefit the entire spectrum. If you had to 
think about one thing in one moment during this filming that you went, wow, that's really interesting. That can really impact my life in an interesting way I wasn't expecting. Was there a moment like that? I, I wouldn't say one specific moment. I mean, I have these, there are these gems throughout which are just, um, which kind of would stop me in my tracks of feeling like there's a, there's a gentleman wolf who's in the film and he, um, he talks about social interaction and, uh, and, and, um, how he doesn't, he wouldn't want to be neurotypical. He wouldn't want to be normal. And he's joyous. He lives, uh, in alone, um, and is very successful. So he's, he's, um, he works for the government and, and, uh, makes a good wage and, uh, and he's a happy individual and he doesn't, he doesn't have any of the sort of uh, conventions. I mean, his happiness isn't um, could not be rated by any of the typical conventions that um, that neurotypicals might have, like being married and having you know things in a certain way. But wonderfully happy person and very fulfilled person, and wouldn't want to be different at all. Remember that in our program, we present our opinion and the opinion of our guest, and is not to be interpreted as medical advice. What if there was a way to help your struggling child perform better academically? Would you pick up the phone and call? Lysol Improvement Occupational Therapy Services in Puyallup, Washington, supports wellness and optimal educational performance. Instead of just reteaching information, we endeavor to identify the possible root causes for your child's learning difficulties. We offer targeted testing to assist in the creation of an individualized plan and provide you with the brain training tools that can help improve academic performance. Visit our website at www.lifestyleimprovement.com or give us a call today at 877-957-7387, extension 101. That again is 877-957-7387, extension 101, for an initial free phone consultation. Lifestyle Improvement Occupational Therapy. We're ready to partner with parents and to help your child succeed. Thank you so much for joining us here on Lifestyle Improvement for part one of our interview with Adam Larson. Mr. Larson is a documentary filmmaker and a video projection designer for live performances. He has completed projects for over 200 productions in opera, dance, and theater. Of great interest to our listeners is that Mr. Larson directed two feature-length documentary films about disabilities. One of them is an acclaimed film titled Neurotypical. This is a film about autism from the perspective of autistic individuals, premiered on PBS. His other film, titled Undersung, focuses on the challenges surrounding caregiving for severely disabled family members. Please join your host Rebecca Rogers again next week for part two of our interview with Adam Larson.